from long ago, but, oh, there we go, but I would have not recognized you, so it's nice to have you here, Richard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, gosh, 92? Yeah. What's your names? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lynn. That's just the LaBelle family. Ten people. All right, we're in Numbers chapter 3. Beginning in verse 5. So... Uh, do you have the cordless mic? I'm going to give that to, um, well, Mary, she's offended if she's not the first one to read. So give that to Mary to start out. <clears throat> read 5 through 10 for me, Mary, as soon as he brings it to you. Test. Hey. Uh, Numbers 3, 5 to 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard the priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay, uh, I think we finished last week talking about Aaron and his sons. So they are the, um, from where we get the priests and particularly the high priest. So he, Aaron is a subset of the tribe of Levi. Um, but Levi, the Levites in general, what are their duties here? <clears throat> their responsibilities, what are they called to do? Right, so they're supposed to guard, and there's two things. They're supposed to guard Aaron, so they're supposed to guard the high priest. And they're also supposed to guard the congregation. Okay, so uh, what would happen... Remember, we have the, I didn't bring my tabernacle in here today, but here's, you got your sheets. If you don't have a sheet of the tabernacle, I got some of these here, of the camp. You want to pass those around? Anybody that might need them? Let's see here. Oh, you know what? I don't have that many of them. Are there more? Did we we pass them all out last time? 
Well, we could make more copies, but I had, there's more in the back because I made like a bunch of them. Maybe we used, used them all up. Anyway, <clears throat> so you have, um, you have the camp, right, that goes basically all the way around. Then you have, in the camp, you have Levites who are basically on all sides of the, t- the tabernacle. Then you have, in the tabernacle, you have the holy place. And then you have the Holy of Holies. Okay, so, um, so what, would, what could happen if an outsider, and we're really talking about just a normal Israelite, what would happen if he got too close to the tabernacle? Right, he could, the, the holiness of God could kill him. And where do they get that, um, that idea from? Obviously, God's teaching it here. But there was a, there, at, in the book of Exodus, there's a really clear uh, example historically where this was happening. Mount Sinai, right? So where, where God says the whole mountain is holy, and if you, if you touch this mountain, you're going to die, basically, right? So, so they're, they're, the, the people of God, this tabernacle, is really... Okay, so, <laughs> so, so some, there it worked. So that must have been it. Um, so Jesus is our high priest. And because he is so perfect, he has opened uh, the way to give us access to God. We can come all the way into the Holy of Holies and not fear. I just, I replaced him. <laughs> okay, so okay, that's a that's an excellent application. So you don't fear getting zapped. So um is there any So that would be a an application of contrast. 
Is there an application of similarity? So, so we are the tabernacle, right? So we are the holy place because instead of God living in a temple, he's living in us, right? And just as if things that were unholy coming close would get burned up or destroyed, so we don't want... What to come in? How do we grieve the Spirit then? Yes. So, so uh, there is an application that sin has to be destroyed, right? And we don't want to... Uh, um, there's, a, there's a still a fear that if you just go on sinning deliberately, that you could be judged. That's a legitimate fear, okay? And I think the, this tells us that God in his presence has to have holiness, okay? So there's, there's, there's a contrast that Jesus has provided. The, it's his righteousness and not our own, but there's also a similarity uh, that, that we still don't want to take sin lightly. It's still an important thing to just think, oh, I can come on into God's presence, no big deal, okay? Would be a, we're not learning the lesson from this. Is what I'm saying. Now, there is another way of similarity, and this is what I call um, gospel similarity. Um, That is, Jesus is our perfect righteousness when we think of justification, so we can get into God's presence. But in a mysterious way, what is it that destroys sin in your life. I'm going to ask it a different way. Do you have to get rid of sin out here before you get here? See, the, the gospel in a sense flips it around. The only way that you can truly be freed from your sin is if you are brought near to holiness and his holiness burns away your unholiness. So this is Jesus modeled this all the time. He goes to the sinner, not so that they can remain in their sin, but he knows that if he remained aloof and kept them apart from him, they'd never be saved. The only way you can actually be holy in your sanctification, in your daily life, is by going into the Holy of Holies. Is there a New Testament passage could be several that might teach this to us. In other words, the, the point is, if I'm going to grow in holiness, I don't do it while I'm apart from God. I do it by going into the presence of God. That's my whole point. Yeah, it seems like it ought to be in Hebrews. Um, There's plenty. Uh, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, 
and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He doesn't say, go bear fruit of righteousness and then think about coming to me. I am the vine. You come to me, and as you're attached to me, you will bear fruit. How about uh, one of my favorites is um, in Corinthians. I always get it mixed up if it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. I think it might be 2 Corinthians. Um, Right. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 12. Well, hold on. Let me just even go back to verse 7 because it will help you understand Moses. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So, you know... Moses goes and meets with God, he comes out, he's glowing so much, people can't even look at him, because he's, you know, it's like, stay away from the glory of God. If that's what it was in the Old Testament, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. I'll go through Moses. Uh, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. I know that's kind of confusing. But, um, uh, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you see, like, so so how do we become holy? It's by getting right here and looking at God. That's how you become holy. Yeah, go ahead. Excellent, excellent. And what's the verse on that? It's uh, Hebrews what? It's 10, 19 to Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. And so there's such this beauty. We have greater access in the new covenant. But that Hebrew, let's turn to Hebrews 10 a second there because it's so helpful. Um, and all I'm trying to do is balance Leanne's initial comment that we no longer have to fear getting zapped. Okay, which I think is a true comment in Christ. If you're going to bear the righteousness of Christ, you don't have that. So she was reading uh, from verse 19, I think, right? And so, uh, but look down at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? That's even more than grieved. Uh, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And then he, he ends on a more positive note. But the point I'm trying to say is that Yes, we are the tabernacle. When we continue in sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's also a sense that this Holy of Holies represents the eternal heaven, the throne room of God. And God is going to, if you deliberately choose to go on sinning, we're all sinners, we all fall short. But if you just say, oh, I'm forgiven, I can just go on doing whatever thing, ever I want, walk in sin and I'll be just fine. If you don't have any fear that you are actually going to stand before Jesus one day, you better beware. There's a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, for those of us who are humble and broken and confessing our sins and striving to say, God, please overcome our sins. Yes, I'm falling short. I feel shame for not being better than I am. All those kind of things. There is tender mercy. There's no question about that. You, you, you have a high priest who, who meets with you and works with you. I mean, it's, it's a, you have greater access than ever. So there's, all I'm trying to do is say that there's a lot of ways to try to take this message and bring it in here. So if I were a Levite, by guarding people, right, I, I'm trying to teach people that, listen, God is holy. And that holiness can fry you or it can sanctify you, right? Both of those. And it's only by the, by the blood of the lamb, which then is fully fulfilled in Christ, that you can approach this holiness. You need that cleansing. So there's a, anyway. Um, so the, the Israelites' job is to basically, inf- uh, the Levites' job is to enforce gospel truths so that people get it right, right? That's, what, that's what's happening in their lives, um, Yes. 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 And yes. Yeah, so uh, he asked if the, if you take communion wrongly, does this apply? Yes, it does. Communion is there. Um, so that you will bring your remaining sinfulness to a holy God. You're not supposed to run away from him. (laughs) You are supposed to say, Lord, I have failed you in this area. That's why you have to examine yourself. You need to to look at your heart and say, oh, gosh, why am I so evil? You know, and you're, you're struggling with this. But it's also to then say, the blood of Christ cleanses you and encourages you to come into the presence of God so that you can behold him, and as you behold him, his work is what's purifying you so that you can go out and continue to live a, a, a holy life, strive for holiness. Now, if you, if you go about communion not caring about holiness, God is going to resort to other means. So you might get sick, you might, have, you, might, you might die early. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen, physical ailments, which God uses not to condemn you if you're truly in Christ, but to actually bring you to repentance. That's the, that's the goal of that, uh, those disciplines that he has. Because 
we cannot get around this, that ultimately, at the end, think about your eternal glory. Is God going to have a people that are just this, yeah, I'm, I'm righteous in Christ and I'm just full of sin. That's not where we're going to end up. <laughs> he's in the process of making us holy. That's where he's getting us. And communion is a way of which we are, are trying to lay hold of this tension. I'm a sinner. How can I come into your presence? I'm like, I want to be like Adam and run from you, but you're telling me to come into your presence so that you will actually deal with my sin and burn away that, that dross and make me more who you want to be. So I actually think that um, if people take communion seriously on a regular basis, then when you finally die and you actually go to see Christ, you'll be like, oh yeah, I've done this a lot. I've done this repeatedly all through my life. I know what it means to feel like, oh my goodness, you're going to crush me because I'm sinful, but I'm trusting in Christ and I'm pleading with you to cleanse me. You know, so you're used to that process. That's the, that's the importance of, it's like God gives you a thousand trial runs so that you'll be ready for the reality when you go before him on the judgment day. So, Okay, so this is good. So if learning how to go from this Old Testament picture into a New Testament context is not easy. It's not an easy thing. But if we don't do that, we're never going to get what's going on in the Old, in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, we have to... Have to uh, bring it into our context so um, okay it does and by the way that's a great segue into uh, our Sunday evening service we are going through the book of Hebrews so we can uh, thank you for that advertisement there <laughs> um Turn to second, or First Corinthians seven. So in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, you had the whole camp, what was a holy camp, and then you had the tabernacle, which was even more holy, you had these levels of holiness. And we said that, that we, we took an application of the temple to the individual, that you as an individual are the temple of God, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in you personally. But the Bible also says in the New Testament that the church is the temple of God. Okay, now we don't often think this way. We just think of ourselves as a group of individuals. But God often thinks of the church as a whole, as a holy people, or a holy place in which he dwells. Do we not say that God dwells in the midst of his people? Okay, so in the Old Testament, if you had somebody who was unholy trying to come into the place that was holy, they could die. Okay, so, so, so just think about this. 
So God actually cleanses all of Israel. Part of it's through the ceremonial sacrifice uh, and circumcision and different things like that. But they also sprinkled blood on the people. It's all these kind of things that they did to cleanse the whole people of God. But they were cleansed as a whole people. Because all these individuals, together, God dwelt in the midst of them. Okay? So, you get, it didn't mean that every individual was as perfectly holy in practice as they could be, but they were a cleansed people. Okay? So now you go to 1 Corinthians 7, 13 and 14. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I'm telling you, that verse, those two verses make no sense if all you can understand is um, spiritual holiness. Like you're, you're a good person, kind of holy. But you think about it, you have a husband... And you have a wife. They are to be one flesh. If one of them is a believer and the other is an unbeliever, um, that would be bringing, in the Old Testament mindset, it would be like bringing an unbeliever into the temple. Right? And so the idea is, oh, should we not be... And this, don't think of it as... The person just like it was a heel and married a non-believer when they were a believer. Think of it as two people and one of them becomes a Christian. And the other doesn't. Right? So you're like, uh, what do I do? Am I, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Am I bringing God into union with that which is unholy? Because if that happens, he crushes them. So they're talking about, should I then... Get divorced from my spouse. And Paul says, no, 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 you're missing the point. In fact, if anything, the, the believing spouse makes the unbelieving spouse holy. It cannot mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved. It cannot mean that they're not still in danger of hell if they don't repent and turn to Christ. Plenty of other passages teach that. But they are holy. And then he says, because if, if the home was not a holy place, the children would be unholy. Okay? And if the children are unholy, again, God's not distinguishing. If you're unholy and you come into his holy presence, bam, fear of death. Fear of being zapped. But what happens with, in the church, God expects these children who are holy, to regularly be in the midst of the church. And the only way that can happen is if they're holy. Set apart to God. Cleansed. Doesn't mean the kids are saved either. Doesn't mean that they're eternally holy. But see, we don't think in terms of corporate holiness. We only think in terms of individual holiness. It's all just you. So it doesn't matter to us if, if uh, 
unholy and holy together. But it does matter in the Jewish mindset that God taught. And I believe that Paul actually embraces this in the New Testament. Questions on this now? Well, see, this is, this is the, this is the, um, probably the, one of the most enlightening reasons to study Leviticus and to study Numbers. Because we don't have, in our modern thinking, we don't have a paradigm of holiness except in moral holiness or spiritually born again holiness. We don't have a paradigm that we are, um, Uh, federally holy or corporately holy or set apart by God. So let me ask you this. In the Old Testament, the whole of Israel was, in a sense, set apart as holy. Does God say, does God say, instead of a people, instead of a tribe, the Levites, does he say, listen, you pick out those in your, among yourself who are the most godly people and make them your priests. Is that what he does? He doesn't do it that way. He says, I'm going to take this, this whole tribe and I'm going to call them holy. Has God just miraculously made them perfectly sanctified so they can enter into the temple? No. So do I understand exactly what this holiness means? I don't understand exactly what it means. But I know that it wasn't something that was just um, a moral or a spiritual holiness. God, through some act that he did, sets them apart as holy. Okay? Same thing as Abraham. God likes to take the person. Now, what's interesting in this is this is provisional because God takes the, the, a certain portion of his people and makes them priests. But is it not true that we are a kingdom of priests? So in a sense, he's going to take the whole people in the end, and he's going to make them just as holy as the Levites, or just as holy as the high priest. Because we all get to go right into his presence. Correct. I think, I think if you have been made holy, then you have a responsibility to live out that holiness in every area of your life, which would mean moral holiness, which would mean being born again, which would mean all these other things. But it's not being made holy is not just you've been made sanctified, he, you know, in the moral sense. It's, it's that God actually says, I'm uh, setting you into a position where you can come near to me. And guys, I think this is exactly what's happening with our kids. That's why we baptize them. Because God says, you bring your kids to me. You bring them into my presence. They they need to be near to me because it's the only way that they're going to ever be sanctified. Now, does it then also create huge responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're a holy person. You don't, get to, you don't get to choose whether you want to be holy or not. God has set you apart as holy, so you better be holy in every other sense of the term. So um, it will become clear as we go through numbers 
that there are other aspects to holiness besides just the moral one. And I'll, I'll give you just one quick example, but we'll flesh it out more as we go along. Could a person with a skin disease that had festering blisters come into God's presence? No. That's not sinful. How cruel of God to keep somebody out of his presence. It's not, it's not unholiness, not, not sinfulness that that caused that. I mean, other than the fact that any disease, any death, is a reminder to God that we are all under a curse. He couldn't even come from camp. I know. <laughs> Outcasts. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So, so again, what is God teaching in this? And I, it's funny because you could come into as a regular Israelite, get, get to the regular front of the tabernacle and offer sacrifices, but not if you had touched a dead body. We think, well, what if my dad died? You know, well, God says, no, you don't understand. God doesn't want to see sin, but God doesn't want to see any effects of the curse in his presence. You think about that. This is, when I started studying Leviticus and Numbers and I started getting this, it just, everything made sense to me. Um, God will tell the high priest, he tells the high priest, even if your own family members die, don't touch them. Now that's not a normal thing. He doesn't require that of the regular Levites. He doesn't even require that of the people. But the high priest, because he is holy, he's not even allowed to touch them. We gotta flesh that out, but God does not want to see the curse. He hates the curse, even though He's the one that brought it upon them. Which is why you can't actually um, you can't have true blessing unless the curse is completely removed in Christ. And, and He's gonna He's gonna uh, He's gonna heal every disease in Christ. He's gonna take because in eternal glory there can be no marring imperfections of the fall before God's presence. None whatsoever. I hope this is kind of just opening cans of worms because just thinking about this just blew my mind as I'm studying this in Leviticus and Numbers. All right, let's keep going. Numbers 3, 11 through 13. Uh, Joe, would you read that for me, please? Because the microphone will be close, close to you. Oh, the battery's bad on that too? Bad battery day. All right, I'm going to read this, and then when we get the microphone done, we'll let other people read. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel. Instead of every firstborn who opens the womb from among the people of Israel... The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. 
Alright, so some thoughts on this. Where, where does he get the idea of taking the Levites to himself? What's the, the, uh, the seed of this tree that grows? Why does God take the Levites? Yes. Excellent. That's right. So the first child of every family belongs to God. Now even that should make us go, really? Doesn't every child belong to God? <laughs> right? But what did he do in Egypt? He was going to kill the firstborn, right? And God didn't take the firstborn because they put blood over the doors. Yes, yeah, the firstborn was the heir, yep, yep. Um, and again, this is somewhat mysterious to me. I mean, I could see where God just said, you all belong to me, right? I mean, he just could have said that. But there are, there are this concept of ever-increasing levels of moving towards God's holy of holy presence, his holy presence. And God wants to teach that this is going on. So he says, okay, you guys are all holy to me, but to give you this sense, I'm going to take a portion out of you, and it's going to be mine. Okay? Of course, Christ is the firstborn uh, that that dies in our behalf, so it points to Christ. Um, But these Levites are a substitution for the firstborn. That's what they are. Instead of God taking the firstborn of every tribe and plucking them to himself, he takes a whole tribe and says, I will take this tribe as my own. All right, so we have a long section here, 14 through 37. We've got to go pretty fast through this, so... We got a microphone now. All right, give that to Joe. Joe, you can read 14 until you get tired and give it to your dad, and he can read some. We're going to go through 37. Okay, I'll go down through 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by father's house and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord, as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names. Oh, great. Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans. Libni and Shammai, and the sons of Kohath by their clans. Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uzali, and the sons of Merai by their clans. Mahalai and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites by their father's house. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libanites and the clan of the Shiamites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west, 
with Elisaph the son of Lael, as the chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting, in, meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that is all around the tabernacle, and the altar in its cords, all the service connected with these. To Korhath belonged the clan of the Amorites, and the clan of the Israelites, and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzalites. These are the clans of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males, from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with Elizaphan, the son of Uziel, as chief of the fathers. House of the clans of the Kohathites and their guard duty involved the ark, the tabernacle, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priest minister. In the screen, all the service connected with those and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. To Merari belonged the clan of the Mahalites and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merari. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from month old and upward, was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihail. They were to camp on the, on the north side of the tabernacle. And appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories. All the service connected with these also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. Okay. So he does a, there's a couple things you need to notice. One, they are, uh, the census that they have is from one month old and upward, right? In the other one, it was 20 years. And it was because that's where you could go into the army, those sorts of things. But here, the Levites, because they're set apart uh, in replacement of the firstborn, it's one month old and upward that they are that they're chosen. Uh, there are three uh, major tribes of the uh, Levites, and there they are: Gershon, Merari, and uh, Kohathite, Kohath, uh, the Kohathites. So, and to each of these is given different tasks. So, who are the Gersh- Gershonites? What is their task that they're given? You think about it, there's 7,500 of them. That's a lot of... And I'm, guys, these are all roadies. You ever been to the fair and they take things down and put them up? These are the roadies. They travel and all they do is they take down the camp and put it back up again. So what are the, what are the, uh, the um, Gershonites doing? Right, so if you look at the, if you look at, uh, the tent, there's a lot of cloth kind of stuff. 
and they're, that's where they're, they're taking all that. That's their job, okay? They're, they're the ones uh, that are handling all of these. Um, that's their service, okay? Um, how about the Kohathites? So these are the holy things, right? When we start thinking of the tabernacle, we think of those, those pieces of furniture and utensils that are, that are more holy, even the ark itself. So you can imagine, oh, I'm carrying the ark. You know, how, how important that would be, right? Whereas opposed, the Gershonites, they're handling the, the, the screens and the coverings and that kind of stuff. But, but the um, Kohathites have a, a kind of a heightened... Uh, Job. What about the people of Merari? Sort of like the yeah, they're handling the frames, right? Now, if you know anything, and you have to go and look at my model of the tabernacle, but God, in the way that he constructed the tabernacle, the closer that you got to the Holy of Holies, the more holy or valuable it was. So, like, the things that were right connected to the Holy of Holies, they were made out of pure gold. Then you, you move back and you can get silver. And then you can go from silver to bronze. So if you had a tent post um, on the outside, uh, well, let's start here. You had, you had a post on the, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, it would be like gold and maybe silver at the bottom. I can't remember. I have to go back and look. But if you're at a tent post that is out on the outer rim, you know, of the whole screen, it would be bronze and maybe silver up here. You see how you go from, from you know, one level to another level because you're moving ever into uh, a greater degree of holiness. This is why I think Paul in 2 Corinthians says, we are beholding God from one degree of glory to another. It's like, it's like you just keep being lifted up into the presence of God and you're seeing him and he's taking you further in. It's a, it, that was a clear picture in the, in the tabernacle. Very organized, yes. And you had your job. Now, when I think about this, um, as many applications, ways to apply this, uh, you can apply it eternally. We all have our positions. We all have our places in eternity that we have that we are uh, interacting with God in our service. But in this, uh, let's just look here and then bring it into the church. Not everybody was handling the most holy things. Could there be jealousies? You know, you just think, oh man, that guy, hey, why does he get to handle the ark? Why am I stuck just handling the posts? Right? But what's the attitude that you're supposed to have? The whole camp needs to function together. And people learn this in army, you know, you could be the cook, you're just as important as the guy who's handling the machine gun, right? I mean, it's like everybody functions together, and God has those functions, and we are the church. So it doesn't matter what your job is. You might be cleaning windows, or you might be teaching, or you might be working with kids. You know, whatever you're doing, you have your part, and God assigns that, and you accept that and say, this is what it has to happen to make the, the church run, because we are all a holy people. So if you're just handling tent posts, you wouldn't say, I don't have a holy job. I have a holy job. I've been set apart. Regular Israelites can't even touch these posts, but I get to. Because that's what God set me apart to do. 
Mo grass. That's right. And a big part of the Reformation was saying that it didn't matter what you did in life, as long as it wasn't sinful, it was a holy calling. And I think that's an important thing to learn. As long as you don't miss that... The church is God's holy place. See, this is where I think that we have gone too far. We've said, oh, everything's holy. And then we've basically said, well, the church isn't worth my time. It's not worth my effort. It's not worth really trying to sacrifice for. No, I believe the church, and I know it's not just this physical building, but it's the people in the church and the service of people in the church that is, that is what we're called to do. It's a holy people, and therefore we are to serve one another in the church. And It's about glorifying God. Does that mean we don't love those who are outside the church? Of course we love those outside the church. But you have to have this sense that there's holiness. This is the same thing. People say, well, you can meet with God any day of the week. Well, you can, and every day is holy to God. But he set apart Sundays as his Sabbath. It's a holy time when he, his people gather together. And so, so, see, I think, I know that as I've studied Leviticus and Numbers, it's helped me to understand, oh, oh yeah, the corporate people of God, the, the holy place, um, it just helped me to see the value and the importance of these things and how often we complain about our jobs serving the church. Oh, I can't believe I have to do that again, you know, or, and so there's a sense of, God doesn't want that. He says, I'm holy. The whole, your task in serving the people and helping them to come near to me is a holy job. It's a holy calling. All right, let's, okay, so how many, in verse 43, how many Levites were there? Yeah, and I don't want to get into, remember we talked about last time the numbers game of how does this work out with, you know, two and a half million people and the firstborns and stuff like that. It doesn't seem like there's enough firstborn in this, but, but that's not, I don't want to get into that discussion. But somehow they then took a, um, they took a, uh, the census and the number of firstborn people in the entire Israelite didn't exactly meet up to the number of Levites, did it? Did we get to that yet, or is it in the next section? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look at verse 4. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm looking at my notes. I jumped ahead. Sorry. So 38 through 49, we need to, to continue on with this. So uh, let's see. Mike LaBelle doesn't even need a mic. He, you can bring it to him, but he can start reading. He's got such a good, loud voice. Everybody will hear this. So read 38 through 40, 51, Michael.
Okay, so they do these two censuses, and the Levites come to 22,000, and the firstborn comes to 22,273. And, and so there, there are no more Levites to, to take care of the substitution of those 273. So God doesn't want us to make, you know, truth is the ridge line, he doesn't want to say, oh, yeah, it's just kind of a general principle yeah, that whole firstborn thing, you know, yeah, we can fudge a little bit. Let's just fudge the figures. It's close enough. God doesn't want to do that. At the same time, God doesn't want us to come to the conclusion that, okay, we got to get more Levites or some of us are just done, you know. <laughs> God's going to take them, right, because he's taking the firstborn out. And so God, cre- because he's a good, practical God and we don't live in the perfection of new heavens, new earth yet, um, he creates a situation by which these 273 can be ransomed so that they can participate in worship and not be crushed. So God is, a, I think, a very good God. He's practical. you got to live. we got to live. You know, people have to come before him. And so he, he provides this ransom price. Um, and it also just helps us to know that um, this concept, I guess, of ransom that's in there uh, as well. Uh, of course, in the new heavens, new earth, We've all been purchased by the blood of Christ. It's, it's enough to cover whoever God brings near to him. Says Yours says redemption. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Redemption, yep. You're, you're redeeming them. You're, you're, in a sense, God is uh, he's making the books equal out. Um, and you might have comments on this. You might be able to have questions or thoughts on this. I don't take it too detailed, but... Um, it's important that God does this. I think it's a really cool thing that he's not, oh, sorry, you 273 or tough luck on you. <laughs> you know, he provides a way for him. <clears throat> where do Aaron and Moses and their children, where do they camp? Right at the entrance. Yep. So again, they're given priority because of that uh, to be there. All right. Oh, boy. We have to stop. I don't want to stop, but I have to get better. Sandy, I'm sorry. i got to get better. She says, I, I was supposed to do all of numbers in four weeks. So, anyway, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But I do have, uh, I would like to hopefully next week get through three or four chapters in numbers because I think it, it, it's like the whole functions together. And if you just start looking at the individual parts, it's hard to see how it all functions. And when you get it together as a whole, it goes, oh, okay, that's what's going on. And and these Israelites um, lived in this setting uh, every day. So I would just encourage you to, you know, read quickly, but skim through, really up through Numbers 10, um, because this is all preparation for God's people to be ready to start moving towards the promised land. So... All right, let me just pray. Father, I know that uh, your word is perfect, and 
I also feel the limitations of my own uh, understanding of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to understand holiness, uh, both moral and spiritual holiness, but also um, this this uh, being set apart, being um, uh, elevated by your call to a sphere of holiness that that enables us to be in your presence. And we just we thank you for teaching these things, and we pray, Lord, that we would apply them to our lives. We pray that whatever we do connected with serving the people of God, we would know that that is a holy function that we do. Um, And I just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.